0: Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. Honor to worship with you this morning and to open God's Word. If you have a copy of God's Word, Exodus chapter 10, if you do not have a copy of God's Word, there are... Free copies available on the table back there. Blue and black copies of God's Word. I think they're all black this morning. Uh, Please take one and have a copy of God's Word. Give it to someone who may be in need of one. Have the Word of God in front of you. Exodus chapter 10. Uh, uh, I don't know what to call this. Maybe an... Maybe an... Apology. An apology. Uh, Last week in my... In my passion... For preaching, I asked a uh, maybe not so clear question about a passage of scripture, John 3 16 and the verses that follow, 17-18. And, and I asked, who knows what they say? And not many hands were lifted, and I got even more passionate about God's word because I'm so desperately wanting people to know God's word. And afterwards, several of you kindly were like, Pastor, we know what the Bible says after John 3:16, but we thought you wanted us to quote it and we thought maybe you'd call on us and we didn't want to misquote it or paraphrase it and, and so uh, a bit of an apology that your pastor doesn't think that you don't know God's word and so I just wanted to clarify that. Like I know that many of you are in the word and many of you do know the word and that I in a moment of passion for God's word was concerned that maybe we don't because I know that in my own life we can never know God's word enough and I am always desperately concerned that I do not know. God's Word, and even more so for the souls that God has called me to care for. And so from me, a pastor, to you people listening to me speak, I'm sorry. I'm glad you're in the Word. And if you're not, get there. Get there. Exodus chapter 10, Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, if you're looking for the exact spot, we will be in. God has promised deliverance for his people. God delivers, redeems, and dwells with his people. He has promised deliverance for his people. In delivering them, he is judging his enemies. And God has brought thus far eight plagues on Pharaoh and Egypt, eight mighty acts, eight judgments, eight multiplied signs and wonders. He is making himself known in the earth. Today we come to the ninth of ten plagues. And it is ominous. And for another big word, foreboding. It just, it just looms. As we read all that has happened, would you join me this morning? Exodus 10, 21 through 29. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord, your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must, let us, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die, Moses said. As you say, I will not see your face again. Would you pray with me? Father, as we open your word and come to a moment desiring to learn from you and be fed, Father, by you, for I realize that I am unable to feed your sheep unless you help, unless you, Father, actually do the feeding. Father, I pray that you give us understanding and wisdom according to your word, by the truth of your word and the power of your spirit. Father, help us to see this darkness in Egypt and how it applies to us today. And may we live in light of what we learned today. Father, I pray that as your word is studied and examined here this morning, God, that sinners will be humbled to repentance and to salvation. God, save. Father, I pray that we, your people, will be prompted and pushed by the truth of your word to live in holiness and godliness as these please you for your people. And I pray, Father, that today Christ the Savior would be exalted in our singing, our praying, our preaching, and our fellowship, that all the world may know that there is a God. Father, it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I titled the sermon this morning, the people of Israel had light. I have one thing for us to focus on as we move through this. May we see the power of God in the light of Jesus Christ reflecting in the world around us. May we see the power of God in the light of Christ shining in a dark world. It's not easy to preach a sermon from the Bible on darkness and light because the entire word of God is full of darkness and light. And I would encourage you, if you're like, Pastor, I'd like to study God's Word. I'd like to learn what would you encourage me to study. I would encourage you to write down two words, light and darkness. And I would encourage you to trace those out through Scripture and see everything God's Word says about light and darkness. And to see as it progresses from the creation of darkness and light to the consummation of the ages with darkness and light. From the beginning to the end, and everywhere in between, you can find references to lightness, to light and dark. And I would encourage you to to study that out and see how that applies to you. This morning, we are going to examine this ninth plague in Egypt. And it is, I believe, just ominous. It comes in the fashion of of the, what I wrote it down so I wouldn't forget, it comes in the fashion of the third and the sixth plague. This is the third of the third set of plagues, and so it's following that pattern. The first, the fourth, and the, I'm going to be really bad at doing math. The first, the fourth, and the eighth, seventh, all coming. Rise early and go to Pharaoh. Meet Pharaoh and tell him. And then the second set of those plagues all go to Pharaoh and say. And then the third set of those plagues all just God saying to Moses, do this. And then there is one more plague. All of these plagues are culminating to this tenth plague. It's just looming out there. If you're a student of the scripture, you know as we walk slowly through these plagues and examine what we can from them, you know that tenth plague is hanging out there and what on earth do we do with that? And all these other plagues are building to that. God said, I know that Pharaoh will not let my people go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And though we are seeing the hand of God press down, the mighty hand of God compel him more and more, the hand of God has not yet compelled him fully. And we all know that's coming in the 10th plague. But before we get there, we have nine plagues to deal with. And when this one comes in the manner of the third and the sixth, you'll remember back in Exodus chapter 8, God said to Moses, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats. And then in the 6th plague... Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and in the presence of Pharaoh, throw them in the air that they may become boils on their flesh. And now God just says, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt. This plague, as all others, is summoned by the divine power of God and it is sent upon Pharaoh and Egypt. It's very ominous. This plague, every plague from the, from the blood and the water through to last week with the locusts, every plague has brought death. Every plague has brought destruction. Every plague has brought death and destruction, and then all of a sudden it is just pitch blackness for three days. Like if, if you don't think that some Egyptians were having a clue when all of a sudden God turned the lights out they started getting one at that point. And we're going to see that as we, as we examine into the 10th plague. We're going to see how the Egyptians were like, <laughs> we don't know what God this is, but holy smokes. Pitch blackness, the Bible says. Pitch blackness for three days. So dark it says in verse 23 that they did not see one another and no one rose from their place for three days. Anybody know a darkness like that? My dad used to tell me stories of his his time in Vietnam. And he would tell me of being out in the jungles at night. And he would tell me, "Son, you cannot know darkness. You cannot know pitch blackness until you're in a place where there is no light." And he would describe it as such. I can vividly remember him saying, Hold your hand in front of your face. And I would. He's like, you can see it. Yes, I can. He would turn the light off in the room. I can't see it. Just wait, son. And your eyes, as they tuned, the light that is around you, like, we can't get void of light. And if you've ever been void of light, you know the, the suffocating feeling of, it's black. And your eyes would tune, and I could see my hand. He would tell me, son, in the middle of the jungle where there are no lights, and there can be no lights, for you may be attacked by the enemy if you have a light, you can't see your hand in front of your face. And here's Pharaoh and the Egyptians cast into pitch blackness, pitch darkness of night. And I wonder, you know, we don't, we don't know at what time of day this plague struck. We're not told that. And then we always need to be very careful of, of imagining or inferring anything that scripture does not say. But I couldn't help but let my mind drift toward was it, was it high sun? Was that sun at its pinnacle, shining its absolute brightest for that span of time? We all know what that is. Midday. The sun is high, it's bright, and it's just as bright as it's going to be. Not a cloud in the sky, and it's just bright. And just all of a sudden, he brought pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt. Egypt. Before we move on to discuss light and darkness, this plague is a vivid illustration of Pharaoh and Egypt's spiritual condition and position before God. This is not just them dwelling in physical darkness. This is a a vivid illustration of their spiritual condition before God. It begs the question, are you in darkness today? There is light and there is dark. Are you in darkness today? Genesis 1 helps us understand the lights that were forbidden by God to shine and I thought that it was extremely relevant that we would consider what Moses wrote for us of creation and then the pitch darkness that comes upon Egypt. So in Genesis 1, you don't have to turn there, but uh, we all know, Genesis I hope you have it memorized by now. Genesis 1 verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, and the earth was formless and void. Darkness covered the face of the waters. Darkness over, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 1, 1 and 2, those words there. Void. The earth was void. And darkness covered the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Those three words there, void, deep, darkness, waters. And it's original writing to its original audience. This is hard for us. This is saying, in the beginning God created everything and there was nothing. That's what the ancient people of God would have understood from Genesis 1-1. This is where we get the Latin expression ex nihilo, creation from nothing. That's where this comes from. Why do we believe that God created everything out of nothing? Because when Moses, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote the words he was carried along to write, to his people then, they understood void, deep, and waters to mean absolutely nothing. And God said let there be, what's the word that follows? Genesis 1 3. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God separated, fascinating word, God separated the light from the darkness. When was light and darkness? There's light and darkness there, so we separate those, right? These cause confusing questions. But if we understand void, deep, and darkness as nothing, when it says that God separated the light from the darkness, we now start to understand what's happening in the creation story. There's light, and it's not nothing anymore. There is light. Genesis 1:3, God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God separated the light from the darkness. Then verse 14 and 16 goes on to tell us about the creation of light. Verse 14 and 16, it says, 15 and 16, Let there be lights. Two major distinctions to make in the creation story. Genesis 1-3, And God said, let there be, all of you, light. Genesis 1:14. And God said, let there be lights. This is the creation of sun, moon, and stars. Let there be lights where in the expanse of the heavens, that means the space between heaven and earth. Let there be lights in the space between heaven and earth to separate the day from the night, to give light upon the earth. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day is the what? It's the sun. The lesser light to rule the night is the sun. And the stars, the sun, moon, and stars, Genesis 1, 14, 15, and 16. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and he created something from nothing. And then later in his creation, he creates lights for the something that he created, the sun, moon, and stars. In the ninth plague of God on Egypt, the sun, the moon, and the stars were forbidden by God to shine. This, this has to be understood. And it gets even deeper than that. Like, well, man, that's, that's not so bad. Like, I mean, when the power goes out at night, I just go and I light a candle. I just go and I, 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 I get a lantern, a lamp, and I, I, I light that and put that on to have light in the room. Why? It's not that big of a deal that they sat in. Did you notice what it says? They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. I was reading both old and modern commentary writers. You know what they say about this? The only thing that we can infer from this, because the children of Israel had light, says where they lived. God, supernaturally, by his power, prohibited Egypt from having any light. I'm going to light this candle. And nothing, nothing is working. I got a candle. I got a candle, I got a match. I'm going to light this lamp. Ow! I'm going to light this lamp. And they can't. They are hindered. They are prohibited. God forced them to sit and to dwell in utter darkness. Those who have been around the Bible or church for any length of time should be thinking it's right for us to connect dots here. Where else are we told... That it is utter darkness, where it is pitch black, where there is no seeing. Notice, this plague happens without Moses going to Pharaoh. It's happened before, it just comes about. But when it happens, Pharaoh knows precisely who to call right he's dwelling in pitch blackness this is that god of moses fault we had the blood we had the frogs we had the flies we had the gnats we had the livestock dying we had the sores on the people we had the hail we had the locusts now it's pitch black i know who's responsible for this and pharaoh should rightly point the finger at himself he's bringing this in his resistance to god This plague just comes. There's no if you don't let my people go, if this, if that. It's just, Pharaoh, this is my judgment. Dwell in the bed. What would we say today? Lie in the bed you've made. Pitch darkness. Pharaoh changes his position in the eighth plague. Who shall go? Well, all of us young, old, man, woman, everyone. No, no, no. Nope. The men may go. I'm willing to let you go, Moses, you and the Israelites. Only the men. He changes that here. You'll notice in his language to Moses when he calls him in, go serve the Lord, your little ones also may go. There's a change of position. Wow. He's letting them go. Pay attention to it. Pharaoh is letting them go. Only, you may not take, still trying to make a deal, you may not take your herds or your livestock. Leave them behind. This is, Kind of obvious to us, right? Consider all the plagues to this point. We have to. You can go, but leave everything else behind. Your animals and all that, leave those behind. We're going to... Moses, we have need of your animals because your God has killed all of ours. There's nothing left here. We'll, We'll be needing your animals, Moses. Leave those behind. What's the other one of two ways that it can be seen? Either that, all our livestock is dead, so leave us yours. Give us those. We're gonna need them. Or I'm just making sure you come back, Moses. I don't want to let you go. I don't want you going out to serve your God and staying gone. Remember back in chapter 8, he tells me, You've got some evil scheme in mind. You'd never want to return. Go but stay in the land. No, no, we must leave the land. Fine, go, but don't go too far. No, they're going, and and Pharaoh knows what's really happening in all of this as we consider the plagues. What's really happening? Pharaoh's grip—that is, I mean, just like this in the beginning. What's happening? He's, he I can't hold on to. The, he can't hold on to what he's trying to hold on to. God is forcing through his hardness of heart. God is forcing his will in conjunction with Pharaoh's will to accomplish God's purpose through the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, and he's losing control. Go. Nothing but a last-ditch effort to maintain control and possession of the Hebrew people. Man, I wonder, in your fight against sin, how long do you hold on to it? How long do you just wrestle with, and, and I don't want to. You, you try to let it, and then you pull it back, and you just, you just can't just let go of the sin that you love. Just let go of it. Pharaoh's just trying to maintain control, just trying to hold on. Moses has already told Pharaoh... We need our flocks and herds. We're going to offer sacrifices to the Lord. We can't do that here in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh. If we do that here in the land of Egypt, your people will see our sacrifices as an abomination. So we got to get clear before we start sacrificing animals to our God. The people of Egypt can't see this. No, they've, we've got to go. And so now here he tells them we must take them. Why? We must take them because we don't know what we're going to need when we get there. Now it can be seen as a tricky statement. It's not. Moses does not know what he's going to need when they get to the mountain of God. God has only said to him, I'm delivering my people. And this will be a sign for you, he says to him. Remember, way back, way back. Cameras three or four. Way back, he says to him. This will be a sign to you. When I've delivered my people, you will come and you will serve me on this mountain. They're going and they're going to offer sacrifices and they're going to offer uh, worship to God through the form of sacrifice, but they don't know what those sacrifices are going to look like. And through the preservation of Israel's livestock, herds, and flocks through all of the plagues and now here through Pharaoh's, no, you leave those behind, No, no, I don't think that we'll do that. We need them to serve God. God is preserving the way for his people to worship him. And Moses sees the trickery. Think about the Israelites in this exact moment. What do they want? What have the Israelites wanted for hundreds of years? We want to get out of here. We want release from the burden and we want release from the bond of where we are held. We want to be gone. How many of us are like, I don't give a rip about the sheep, the flocks, the herds, the livestock. I'm getting out of Egypt. I'm free. Moses, we're free. Right? Can you imagine? Man, if the people of Israel wanted to revolt when Pharaoh made them slave and forced labor upon them, how much more would they want to revolt? If they knew that Moses was like, nah, we're taking all our stuff and we're never coming back, well, we're not going anywhere. Now they're remaining in bondage. Anybody drawing the connection? How many of us want to be rid of this earth? How many of us want to be rid of the struggle of this life? We want to be gone from the troubles of this life, even though we enjoy it. I love living. I love being with you, my wife, my children, our home, my family. I want to be in glory with God. Above all things, I want to stand before the throne of my God and worship him and be fully known and fully know. But we must be here right now. And so just as the children of Israel are able to go, go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you only. Let your flocks and herds remain behind. Moses could easily say, we're out. What is that? Is it obedience? Not at all. We need everything to go with us. We will not go unless everything goes. We should take note. That at every turn where an offer has been made to Moses, and there have been quite a few of them at this point, three or four, at every point where an offer is made to Moses, where they could get out, where some could get out, where some could leave, right? Okay, if just the men can go, then maybe we can get out of Egypt, get into the wilderness, but maybe we can get somewhere where we can like, build up enough might and enough strength. We can build an army and we can come back here and we can demolish Pharaoh in Egypt and we'll rescue all of our women and children and all of our flocks and our herds. Let's re- that's a good idea. Let's just go the men of us. Why? Because when they leave Egypt, there's like 600,000 men besides women and children. They could go fashion an army, right? Right? Let's, let's fashion an army and do this. No. No, we're not doing that. Go, but don't go far. No, we're going three days journey into the wilderness to worship our God. Moses at every turn has obeyed what God said to do, even when it was hard for him and the people around him. Even when it was not what the people would want, Moses obeyed in order to honor God. Why? Why? Because Moses was told in the mountain, I'm sending you to lead my people out. He's got the promise of God. I'm leading them out. I'm not leading them pell mell. I'm not leading them havesies. I'm taking the whole group and all our stuff. We're all going. We also forget, it's going to come into play next week when we see the 10th plague coming in. We also forget that in the end of, right toward the end or maybe the middle of chapter 3, I can't remember the exact verse. We see God say to Moses, remember this thought from many, 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 many weeks back. I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when you go, you shall not go empty. This is why all of God's word is so important as we follow it and trace along. God has told him, you're not leaving empty-handed. You're leaving with everything you need. We should take note that at every turn, Moses obeys God. This is the same Moses. I want you to be encouraged by this. This is the same Moses who didn't even want to go. No, Lord, send someone else. I don't talk good. I'm I'm slow of tongue. No. And now all of a sudden Moses is standing up to Pharaoh saying, no, we're going to do precisely what God said to do or we're going to stay right here in captivity. How's that sound, everybody? Good plan? Not a good plan at all. Good, we're going to do it anyway. Nope, we're staying here. We're taking it all or we're taking nothing or we're staying here until God leads us out in the way that he has said. The same Moses. And as God hands Pharaoh over to the hardness of his heart, we see it there again, verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Is the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart? Or is the Lord simply allowing Pharaoh to operate in the hardness of his heart? The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, would not let them go. Pharaoh holding them still and God giving him over to the desire of his heart to be contrary to God, exposing his true position before God. And as he sits in pitch darkness, he's getting precisely what he wants. He is not letting go. And then look what, look what happens, right? Because that's not the end. A lot of times, if you're paying attention to the plagues, and Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But after that one in this plague, there's more, there's more discussion that hasn't happened before. Look at verse 28. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. I can't, can you imagine? Like, I just, I don't know. Sometimes it can be really dangerous, but like I'm like, man, these guys, these guys hated each other by this point in time. I think Moses is probably trying not to hate God or to hate Pharaoh, but Pharaoh hates God, and I think he's getting to the point where he hates Moses too. Why? Because he says, "For on the day you see my face, you will die." Like that's not friendly speech, Moses. You and I are bros, man. Get out of my face. No, uh, the next time you see my face, you will die. And then the threats come, and we should take. Note of the threats. If there's one message that's not being trumpeted in the church of America, especially today, it's that we as Christians are going to be hated and reviled and persecuted by people around us. That's easy when it comes from a despot like Pharaoh. What about when it comes from people closer to us? If we are truly saved and born again, we are going to face, Christ told us we will face persecution. We should take note of it. Remember earlier in the narrative, remember how inconsequential Moses and his God were when he first came before Pharaoh? Who is the Lord? I don't know him, and I'm not going to obey him. Moses, I'm Pharaoh of Egypt. I am a God, and my gods, I know all of them, and I don't know yours. I won't obey a God I don't know whose people are in my control. No, I don't think so. Remember, inconsequential and unimportant was the God of Moses when he first encountered Pharaoh, God of Egypt and his gods, but then the blood, and then the frogs, and then the flies, and they're everywhere, and then the gnats, and then the the herds, the livestock, and then the sores. That's getting personal now, Moses. I'm still not recovered from the sores inflicted on me by the handfuls of soot you threw in the air. Then the locusts, the hail and the thunder and the locusts and now pitch blackness and Pharaoh's done. Get out of my face. I wonder how many of us are willing to be told that for the cause of obeying Christ. I wonder how many of us would receive such such threat and such rejection. You know that our brothers and sisters around the world, this is not new to them. We're the ones that are like, oh my goodness, what would we do? We have brothers and sisters who are trying to worship God this morning, but they're not sure if they're going to get blown up or shot. Here we are in a school. Are Christians ready to face the kind of rejection that says, I say that in our country, we are not. Get away from me. So imagine tomorrow morning your favorite coworker, your neighbor, your spouse, your kids. Get away from me. That's what we must be prepared for as God's people. Praise God for those homes and those situations where we don't face that. Praise God for spouses together in church where we don't, I pray, face that. I pray that everyone's profession of faith is genuine and right and true, but let's step outside of the home. Get away from me. Open your mouth about your God one more time and I'm going to put my fist in your face. How many of us are going to clam up at that point? Okay, okay, okay. Maybe it is wise to clam up. Most of us probably wouldn't, though. Most of us would probably have a retaliatory nature to that. Then there goes our Christian witness. And Moses is just like, Pharaoh, we're either taking everyone and everything or we're not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere. I will be obedient to the Lord. There's wisdom. I'm not necessarily sure that you should spout off because Jesus does talk about casting pearls before the swine. So if you've got somebody who wants to punch you in the face for your testimony of Jesus Christ, you might want to recalculate a little bit how you're approaching that conversation. It may be that there's hurt. And past things in their life that it's worth, I'm going to pray a little bit more and ease up here. Right? I'm not saying give up. I'm saying think about how you're approaching a situation where you talk about Christ and someone gets so violent. But what do we know? Let's also come to grips with reality at the end. At the consummation of the ages, they're just gonna start murdering God's people. And I'm sorry, parents of young children, what a wonderful, pleasant thing for you to have to go home and talk about. But if you are not raising your children with a right view of God's people in this life and what awaits us because of our faith, you're making a mistake. You be honest with them. Christians have died for centuries for the cause of Christ. We Talk about that reality. Don't hide it. Don't hide the reality of the people of God. Why? Because that's grim. But there's hope in Jesus for eternity. For as they persecuted me, so they will persecute you. And what happened to Christ? Up from the grave, he arose. Praise God. Moses is simply receiving the overflow here of Pharaoh's hardness of heart, his hatred for God and for God's people. Christ was clear in the Gospels. You'll be persecuted for my name. Peter was clear in his letters to the church. You're going to suffer persecution. Paul was clear in all of his letters about everything that he endured. And we should also be aware that this type of behavior, we may face it. We may not. God may spare us. But in time, before the end, Christians will face this small glimpse of what we see right here. Christian, as we stand unwaveringly for the truth of God, we should expect the hatred of the world. Just expect it. It's not so off-putting when you realize they dwell in utter darkness. They don't like the light. What does the light do? I was thinking about this analogy this week as I thought about lightness and about light and darkness. If we go into a room, we all know, if if all the lights are turned off and everything that has light coming through could be blacked out, we know that this room would be blacked. But you know what I found earlier with a couple friends of mine? And if anybody from Byron Schools watches this video online, they'd be like, oh my goodness, over here in this wall, nobody standing here with me this morning thought this was going to happen. But here we are. Here we are. Over here in this wall, I don't use props, but sometimes you have to. There's an electrical outlet box up there. Little seam that comes down from it. And I was standing at just the right spot with a group of men who also then took a look because they were like, You're crazy. And they're like, Oh no, there it is right there. There's a pinhole of light in that wall. And it's coming from outside. And so, do you know what? If this room was entirely black and every light was off and everything was sealed and that wasn't, there's light coming into the room. And what happens when light comes into darkness? This isn't my Bible. What happens when light comes into darkness? When light comes into darkness, it exposes what's hidden. Pinhole aside, if the room is all pitch black, the lights are off, the windows are sealed, we can't see anything whatsoever, and somebody just took up their phone and didn't even turn on the flashlight feature, just tapped the home screen on the brightest of settings, what would we be able to do? Every single person would be able to navigate their way to the door and get out. Pharaoh and all of Egypt sit in pitch darkness. And while they sit there, end of verse 23, all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Could you imagine? Pharaoh and Egypt, they're in pitch blackness. I I had to like really hard try to get my mind to wrap around this, and I couldn't. I can't, I can't understand a sovereign phenomenon, which is what we're talking about. At some point, let's imagine this line, at some point, the pitch darkness ended. But not for the Egyptians. Everyone, they didn't even move. Like, <laughs> and the Israelites had light. They're walking around. Candles work, oil works, they're doing their stuff. The sun comes up, the sun goes down, the moon comes out, the stars are there, and they're just living life. Do you feel the most excellent of tensions here between the lost in the world and the saved of God? The saved of God are the Israelites in the light. The lost of the world are the Egyptians in pitch darkness, not moving. They're getting nowhere. All their vain pursuits, all their fleshly desires are achieving for them absolutely nothing, and they're getting nowhere. And we're struggling through this life like, oh my gosh, it's so difficult. Yes, but what? But we're moving toward what? Some kind of hope. And over in the blackness of night, they're just saying, I wish I had a little bit of light over here. And you understand that for you dwelling in the light and the person over here in the pitch blackness of night, do you understand that you as the Christian are the light that should be going to them? We are the light of God. Because Christ, the light shone in the darkness. We've heard it in John chapter 1. The darkness shone into the light and, what, and the darkness has not understood it. But what happened? The light shone into it. What did the light do? What does the light of Christ do? What is the point of there being light and there being dark when the light of Christ, which is the glory of God, shines on the utter darkness, sinfulness, and lostness of man? Our sin is revealed. Therefore, our need of a Savior. And what do we do? We look to the only light that has ever existed. The light of Christ, God's glory, shining on Christ, shining on sin, shining into the darkness, and we're like, I'm a wreck. I'm a sinful disaster. While Pharaoh and his people sit in darkness, the Israelites walk around as children of the light. And what about us? And what about your Christian witness? God's word tells us, two thoughts for us to think about as we close this morning. God's word tells us that without Christ, mankind dwells in deep darkness. Remember last week, we're already condemned. We already stand condemned. Our hearts are already hard. We already need to be released from our condemnation, have our hard heart turned to flesh. We're already in need of that. And without Christ, we dwell in utter darkness. But Christ, the light of the world, and in that light was the life of men, shines in the darkness. Christ is the light. He shined in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. This is why that tension between those in the darkness and those in the light exists. What is wrong with you? What's different about you? Why are you like this? I don't want to hear it. That's the divide that we can't see in Egypt. That's the divide between, I'm over here blind. How can you be so happy? How can you be so joyful? How can you be so content with your life when it's just like mine? I'm blind in darkness. Because the light of Jesus Christ shined on me and exposed my sin. And I recognized my need for a Savior that only He was. So I repented of sin and I am trusting through faith the truth that I hear from God's Word that Christ saves, that God gives eternal life. If you have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is the light. And the tension you feel when Christians talk is the darkness you live in. And Christian, we're not off the hook because how often do things in our hearts get darkened? Darkened toward obeying God's word. Darkened toward sharing God's word. Darkened toward our brothers and our sisters. That darkness tries to creep in because we dwell in this world of darkness. We are sinners in need of help awaiting the day that we are perfected for eternity. If you are here and you have not trusted Christ, do so today. How do I trust him? The light of Christ is shining for you today. In those who are singing God's praises, in those who name Christ through faith, the light of Jesus Christ is shining today for you to say, Father, forgive me. May your light shine upon me, God. Save me, Father. I forgive me, God. And whatever words you can come up with before God, call on the name of the Lord through faith in Jesus and be saved. Obey God and believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Now we become lights. Those with faith in Jesus Christ here today, you are lights. It is your responsibility as the people of God to be shining the light that has shone upon you into the darkness of the world. Are you doing that? You are lights. Philippians says that we are to shine like lights in the world in the middle of a crooked and twisted generation. God's word tells us that God does this work in order that we may glorify him. Matthew chapter 5 verse 16. Let your good works shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Proclaiming the excellencies of God, 1 Peter says, is what those who are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, do. That's what we do. I once was blind, but now I see. One of the greatest hymns of our faith ever written. I was blind. I was Pharaoh dwelling in pitch darkness, and God opened my eyes, and I see. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then distinguishing between the children of light and the children of darkness. Well, that gets comfortable. Pastor, I'm good with being in darkness and being in the light now. And I'm good with shining the light of Christ, but let's not talk about those who are really in the light and those who aren't. Because we're called to do that. If judgment's going to come, let it begin first with the house of God. Test the spirits and see if they are of God. See the fruit of your brothers and sisters in Christ. What does light and darkness have to do with that? Much? First John says, much. Those who say, uh-oh, <laughs> darkness, light, darkness, light. Those who say they are in the light, but hate mankind, their brother, are still in darkness. Those who say they have the light, I'm in the light. I'm following the light. I've seen the light. I hate that person. I have no charity for mankind. I don't care what happens to them. You're blind, and you're still in darkness. First John chapter 2, you can read it 9, 10, and 11. Those who say they are in the light, but hate their brother, mankind, who is my, bro- who is my neighbor, Lord, everyone, Mankind is your neighbor, are still in darkness. Whoever loves mankind is in the light. Why? Because loving mankind is a natural default product of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Whoever hates his brother, look at this, (laughs) whoever hates his brother is in darkness. John's writing to Christians, not the lost of the world. Whoever hates his brother is still in darkness walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So as we walk around and as we use words about mankind and how much we love humanity, we probably should be really careful about what we say about how much we really love humanity because when we start to grumble and use words that don't reflect actually dwelling in the light, we're exposing that we may actually still be in darkness if we have not charity for our fellow man. If you cannot find it in your heart to love and care for a person on this earth, John says, the love of God is not in you. Doesn't matter who, doesn't matter where, doesn't matter circumstance, does not matter. If you cannot find it to have charity and compassion on someone in this life, there is darkness still in there. Maybe not total darkness, but there's darkness in there somewhere and the light needs to root that As we see Pharaoh in Egypt, essentially blind, sitting in darkness, vividly displaying their spiritual condition and their life before God. It is right for us, the faithful in Jesus Christ, to think about the light of Jesus Christ that has shined on us, that it may shine on them. Father, I come to you today on behalf of those here gathered. God, that we would be truly children of the light. Father, I pray that as you have called us and named us your own and redeemed us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Peter and Paul say the same thing, transferred us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son. Father, you have moved us from the pitch darkness that Pharaoh and Egypt dwell in, into your marvelous light that we may proclaim your excellencies. And I pray, Father, may we reflect your glory and your goodness to the world around us. Father, those dark areas of our heart where we are still being sanctified, we know, Father, we have not been perfected. Oh, God, forgive us. Father, in the darkness of our hearts, those corners that we have not yet surrendered, those corners not yet brought under the obedience of your word, surrendered to the cross of Jesus Christ, Father, forgive us that we may love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all our mind, with all of our strength, God, and that we would love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would show ourselves to be people who have light. Father, thank you for moving us into the light. Father, I pray that your word would be taken into our lives and and obeyed. God, that we would be people who walk around truly in the light because of the work of Jesus Christ, shining a light on our sin, seeing our need for a Savior. And Father, your redemptive work, praise your name. We thank you, God, forgiveness and mercy for the cross. Thank you. Be with us as we go in Jesus' name. Amen. thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's Word.